You are listening to It's All Relative, the podcast that examines crime and the family. Last week, we talked about the abduction of 11-year-old Jacob Wetterling, the massive search for him, and the connection of Jacob's kidnapping to reports of boys being accosted in the towns of Cold Spring and Painesville. Don't start your IAR journey with this episode. What are you thinking? Go back one episode and start there. If you're really feeling adventurous, go back to episode one of the whole podcast. Before we get into today's editorial, fair warning. We talk about disturbing stuff. This is your chance to bow out. Martika will bring you back to the 90s, and I'll see you on the other side. On January 24, 1990, the same day Danny Heinrich's home is searched, a man called Dwayne Hart is arrested in conjunction with several assaults occurring in 1987, 88, and 89 in Painesville and Belgrade. Dwayne Allen Hart was a pederast. Hart, however, was not the kind of person to snatch boys off the street. He liked to offer candy and booze and chat the boys up. The lead investigator for the 8th Judicial Court, Larry Pert, was sent to talk with Hart in jail. Hart was, surprisingly, frank with Pert about his own crimes and about his theories in the Jacob Wetterling case. Hart pointed at Heinrich as his pick for who took Jacob Wetterling. And since Hart had been a boyfriend to Heinrich's mother and ended up with a long-term relationship with Heinrich, even though the one with his mother lasted only a few months, Hart may be the one most likely to know. April 2, 1991, Painesville police requested assistance from the SCSO, or the Stearns County Sheriff's Office, in finding a man in a tan-colored van that had been following boys on their paper routes. A deputy was tasked to find this vehicle and the driver. It turned out to be none other than Danny Heinrich. The deputy found no reason to arrest him, so he wrote a report and went back to doing whatever it was he was doing before he went looking for the van. Does this whole scenario seem a bit pointless? Am I the only one? Following Jacob's kidnapping, Heinrich was surveilled for two weeks because he was a strong suspect for Painesville and Cold Spring. Now he's following paper boys around, and instead of keeping an eye on him, the cop lets him go on his merry way. The citizenry had found him suspicious. Creepy. They ask for help to find him. He's found. And then they let him go. At this point, no one in that investigation talks about Danny Heinrich again. In fact, both cases, Jacob and Jared's, go cold. No one is talking about Painesville either. But wait, you say, wasn't Hart arrested for assaults in Painesville? Yes, I reply. But Hart liked to coach, not snatch. 
the assault's heart is arrested for are different assaults. Now, this is an odd place to do this, but I would like to point out that in 1990, Painesville had about 2,200 people. Cold Spring had 2,500 people, and St. Joseph had about 4,000. It's not that big of a haystack, people. The media, of course, can't let a good anniversary go to waste. Twin Cities WCCO interviews Heinrich in 1996. Heinrich denies any involvement in the Wetterling case in that interview. Then, in 2003, a man named Kevin relates, probably for the hundredth time, his story of the night Jacob Wetterling was abducted. Kevin was living in the area and saw the lights and heard the sirens that night. Curious, he and his girlfriend drove out to the scene of the crime to see what was going on. They saw the bikes in the ditch and stopped to talk to a cop about those bikes. When they were at the abduction site, they tried to turn down a road to find out it was actually a driveway. So they turned around when they got to the house and went back down the drive. The catch in Kevin's story this time is that he was telling it to a U.S. Marshal. The Marshal told Kevin that he should tell the story to the Wetterling investigators. Kevin was leery about that because the night of the abduction, the cop he did talk to was very dismissive. So the marshal paved the way by calling the Wetterling investigators and letting them know Kevin was coming in. Kevin finally told his story to the investigation. Kevin was cleared of any involvement in the abduction, but his admission jolted the investigation. The tires they had been tracking for 14 years had come from, dun-dun-dun, Kevin's car. So here comes an interesting leap of logic. For some reason, to investigators, the tire tracks being from Kevin's car equated with the attacker having no car. Um, well, 2003 was the first year in the term of a new Stearns County Sheriff, John Sanner. To Sanner, those tires being Kevin's meant the abductor was on foot and the perpetrator could only be one person the person whose driveway end acted as the scene of the crime, the person who was home alone at the other end of that drive, Dan Rassier. On February 7, 2004, the sheriff's office brings Rassier in to help eliminate the car he saw that night, or so they say. When he arrives, it becomes obvious rather quickly that the SCSO was trying to get Rassier to confess to the crime. By the end of the interview, they were openly telling him to confess. Five days later, SCSO investigators are at the Rassier farm. They go through Rassier's computer but find nothing of note. Then Sanner does something that hadn't been done since the beginning of the investigation. Once the initial hype of the case cooled off, all of the leads in the Wetterling case had been kept quiet. Barely a year into his sheriffship, and yes, I made that word up, Sanner went public with the new direction and held a press conference the first of many, I might add. Quote from Finding Jacob. Retired Sheriff Jim Kostriba, who had been chief deputy when Jacob was kidnapped and remained involved with the case for the rest of his career, wasn't so sure. Kostriba announced that Kevin Hamilton's story offered an innocent explanation for the tire tracks in the Rassier driveway, but he distanced himself from the on-foot theory pushed by Sanner. Kostriba still believed there was a vehicle involved, explaining that it would have been difficult for the abductor to disappear with Jacob so quickly on foot. End quote. I hope you have your pins handy because it's time to add another one in that quote. At first, Sander kept the name of his suspect quiet. He Patty Wetterling to write a letter to Rassier, pleading with him to admit to his crime and tell them where Jacob was. 
They later had her wear a wire and bump into Rassier in town, or she asked him the same things. Rassier did not respond to the letter, and he, fairly politely I might add, denied any involvement in their in-person meeting. Sanders' media presence spurred Jared to do the same. He went on the news with his belief that his and Jacob's cases were linked. Kara Levin did a two-part series detailing how the cases are linked. Sanders' response was as follows. Quote, Nothing he is saying on TV is anything we didn't already know, Sanders said of Jared. The only benefit I see in what he's doing is rejuvenating interest in a very cold case. End quote. Okay, so on the one hand, he's right. Jared becoming visible concerning his ordeal after all this time does rejuvenate interest in the cases. But, and if you've listened to this podcast enough, you know there will be a but. To say that is the only benefit is just, well, stupid. Bear with me because there's a reason that I'm laying into Sanner. How can he possibly know that that is the only benefit unless he knows who the unsub is? No one in the investigation told the public about the Painesville attacks and their connection to Jacob. No one told the public about the other attempted kidnapping in St. Joe. Remember eight-year-old Andrew? No one mentioned Dwayne Hart, who was in prison for assaults on young boys. A man who knew Heinrich personally and told the Wetterling investigators that Heinrich was the guy. And by the way, by saying the public, that includes Jared's family, the Shirls, and the Wetterlings. I don't want to get too far off on a tangent. But investigators often hold details from the public. Part of this is to ensure they get the correct person for the crime. Only the investigators and the perp know everything. Part of this is to keep well-meaning busybodies from sticking their noses in and getting in the way. The problem is that people who have important case information or are a witness often don't know that what they know is important. For that recognition to occur, the memory often needs a little encouragement. Some details, people, please. Saying Joe Schmo was last seen on the 500 block of Main Street on April 11, 1982, is very different than Joe Schmo was last seen getting out of his 1977 yellow pacer in front of the Sears outlet, 552 Main Street. Schmo has light skin and shoulder-length brown hair. He was wearing green floral polyester pants, a black ACDC concert tee, and brown ankle boots with a cork heel. The first is just a description of anyone on Main Street that day. Your brain has no reason to separate Schmo from any of the other guys you saw that day, so it doesn't. The second description makes your brain go, wait a sec, that pacer, I saw that pacer, or that t-shirt, or those pants, or whatever. But I think it was Sunday, and you look at the calendar and notice that Sunday was the 12th, not the 11th. So you wonder if the investigators know it was a day later, and you think, I'll just call and check. Look up any misproposting. You'll see what I mean. I realize investigators don't always have all that information, but often they do and just don't broadcast it. And it doesn't have to be clothing. The paper bag the victim was carrying or a common phrase they often use. Anything to make this person or object stand out from the crowd. Otherwise, your brain just files it in, essentially, the dead files. Okay, back to Sander. So Sander thinks Jared isn't doing anything wrong per se, but he also thinks that it isn't valuable either. Quote, As Jared went public with his story, Sander was downplaying possible links. While he acknowledged the cases had some similarities and that these had been considered from the beginning of the Wetterling investigation, 
he cautioned that the links were weaker than previously believed. The similarities are there, and you cannot go beyond that, he said. But are they really and truly connected? Until we get a resolution, I don't know that we can answer that with any certainty, end quote. But Jared is doing something that the cops never did. He's giving the crimes context. As a result, Care 11 makes public all the things that Jared knows. Because remember, the cops never told the public, really, anything. So getting what Jared knows is a huge amount of context. Investigators are looking hard at Dan Rassier. They surveil him for four days in October of 2007. They monitor his mail for four weeks in November. They find nothing of note. The investigation takes a bit of a turn when a man from Milwaukee told his psychiatrist he had killed a child in 1959. Vernon Seitz died before he could confess or be questioned by the police. So they search his home and find a bunch of weird stuff, or eclectic depending upon your point of view. On top of all this stuff, there are posters and videotapes relating to Jacob's kidnapping, and a map of St. Joseph. Investigators find that Seitz had actually gone to St. Joseph to help look for Jacob claiming that he was a psychic and had personal reasons for being involved. They determined that Sites had some serious demons hounding him, but had nothing to do with Jacob's disappearance or any other crime. Then, in 2009, the happenstance meeting between Patty and Rassier was orchestrated. Even though Rassier denied being out of his house when Jacob was kidnapped, Rassier has a mind that many true crime and crime fiction fans would understand. Rassier would often catastrophize by letting his mind think of all the awful ways he could be implicated, even though he had nothing to do with it. For example, Rassier worried that the perpetrator, or anyone wanting to implicate him, could dig into the gravel pit at the back of his property and bury suggestive evidence or even Jacob's bones. On June 30, 2010, members of the SCSO, FBI, BCA, Mikmik, and Lasar all descended on the Rassier farm. If you want to know what any of those things are, Google them. They had used a recording of, of Rassier talking to Patty to secure a warrant to search his property, and by gum, they were gonna do it. They were there for two days. According to the In the Dark podcast, Sanner had actually padded the truth to secure the warrants, including suggesting Interpol was involved. And you did hear plural there, there were four warrants served on the Rassiers those warrants were sealed. Dudley, the author of Finding Jacob, says this was to prevent the warrants from becoming available to the public. No offense, Dudley, but der, that is the reason for sealing anything. The key thing that needs to be explained is why the warrants needed to be kept from the public. Editorial in the St. Cloud Times railed on the decision to seal the warrants and demanded to know why. Their request was denied. Three days after the search of the farm began, Sheriff John Sanner publicly declared Dan Rassier a person of interest in Jacob Wetterling's disappearance. Sanner's statement marked the first time in almost 21 years that authorities publicly named a suspect. Curiously, on the In the Dark podcast, Sanner claims that he named Rassier a POI because Rassier had spoken with the press about being treated like a suspect. According to Sanner, Rassier's interview is what made him have to define how Rassier was linked to the case. Now, I know that some things are hard to come by 13 years later, but I find it strange that I could find no provocative media interview with Dan Rassier occurring prior to Sanner's announcement 
on, Dudley says, July 3, 2010. The most provocative interview I could find was one in the San Diego Union-Tribune by Amy Forliti of the AP. The date was July 2nd. Listen carefully because there are a few interesting things here. The farm is owned by Robert Rassier and his wife, Rita, who are both in their 80s. A woman who answered the phone at the house Friday said, No one would comment. Another message left by the Associated Press was not returned. But Daniel Rassier, 54, told the St. Cloud Times that investigators have interviewed him numerous times about Jacob's disappearance and that he has submitted to a lie detector test, hypnosis, and DNA sampling. I had absolutely nothing to do with anything with Jacob, he told the newspaper. I didn't do it. I had nothing to do with it. Sheriff John Sanner told the Times that Daniel Rassier is a person of interest in Jacob's disappearance. End quote. Now this came out after the search was finished, if the dates are correct. And according to this, Sanner had already named him a POI, one full day prior to the date given by Dudley in his book. And all Dan Rassier said was that he didn't do it, and he gives several ways he had cooperated and tried to prove his innocence. So is Sanner saying here that the problem is that Dan said anything at all? Because that seems really frightening. But also, it looks like Sanner named Rassier a POI because he had just made a hugely visible search that he had to do something to justify in the eyes of the press. The man is full of shit. Again, from Finding Jacob, quote, In September 2010, three months after the search of the Rassier farm, Sheriff Sanner announced that no significant findings had developed. Preliminary lab results were unable to establish, distinguish, or identify potential evidence, he said. The community's renewed hope for a resolution in the case was deflated. The disappointment was not discouraging to Sanner, however. He reiterated that Dan Rassier remained a person of interest in the case, despite the lack of evidence developed from the July search of his residence. If I was a suspect, I wouldn't take this as a signal to relax, Sanner said. This doesn't change a thing. Sanner said evidence taken during the search would be retained for future testing. He believed that advances in technology could one day produce the physical evidence needed to make an arrest. End quote. Really? They've done all this, and they're not going to give up? They gave up on Danny Heinrich, and he was only watched for a couple years, and he got all of his stuff back. There was definitely more probative evidence against him than there ever was for Rassier. I mean, yes, technology would advance, but compare the suspects and see where you've gone wrong, people. The public nature of the investigation into Dan Rassier made things go downhill for Rassier. Not sure how much was real and how much a perceived decline, but Rassier got more vocal after Sanner announced him as a person of interest. Rassier felt that the public perceived him as the probable abductor, and that made his life more difficult. In 2012, he sent a letter to 14 different agencies listing his grievances. Quote, Rassier claimed in his letter that Sheriff Sanner leaked information about him to the press in 2004, as investigators were changing their theory of the abduction. He further claimed that during the July 1st, 2010 search of his family's property, that Sanner twice chided him, saying, This is what happens when you talk. End quote. So it would seem that it is the fact that Rassier talked to the press. Period. Full stop. FYI, Rassier tries to sue. John L. Sanner, Pam Jensen, and Ken McDonald and Stearns County are all the defendants. 
Unfortunately, his suit was denied, not for lack of evidence, but because the statute of limitations had run out. Investigators were suspicious of Rassier's claim of seeing two cars turn around in his driveway, particularly because he didn't mention it until he was interviewed on Monday. Dudley wonders why he didn't mention it to the police when Rassier went out to help in the search for Jacob, or when he went to the end of his driveway on Monday morning to go to work and found his driveway blocked off. Really? On Sunday night, Rassier had no idea where the abduction had taken place, only that there was a horde of people out looking for a missing boy. No one asked him if he had seen anything odd. No one said, hey, you happen to live right by where the boy was taken. There were hundreds of people out searching. Why would Rassier think this land was any different than any of the other places people were looking, unless someone told him, and no one did. And the next morning, when he found his driveway was blocked off, and was told that that was where the abduction had happened, the cops were annoyed that he'd come down his own driveway and asked them how he was supposed to get out not really inviting him to reveal his secrets there. He was also in need of getting to work on time. They act like it took forever for Rassier to come up with these cars, that they came out of the blue. But it was the next day, like 12 hours from when everyone was in a frantic search for Jacob, and maybe three to four hours from him actually finding out that it had happened on the street in front of his driveway. There really isn't anything strange about that at all. What is strange is that no one did a door-to-door knock that night. Investigation 101 talked to the people in the vicinity and see if they heard anything, saw anything, investigate any leads, and then go back and talk to all those people again. Cops never did this. Never. Cops should especially talk to the guy whose driveway was the scene of the crime. What if he was hiding Jacob in the house? No one went to the Rassier home except Dan Rassier. In fact, the cops let Dan Rassier search his own property, unaccompanied. A fact which Rassier rues to this day. He feels he should have said, hey, follow me around, verify my search, if only to prove that Jacob wasn't there. So why in the world is his not mentioning the cars until the next day, when he wasn't questioned until the next day? Why is that odd? Amidst all the new publicity surrounding Jacob's abduction in 2010, A Minnesota blogger named Joy Baker came interested in the case. She did what neither cops nor journalists had done up to that point. She stuck her nose in and asked the hard questions. Importantly, she made all of her investigation visible to the public. She wrote all about it in her blog. Oh, side note, people who report on Baker's investigation tend to highlight that a mom solved the case. Two different YouTube vids with the same name are titled Finally, 27-year-old cold case solved by a mom. I find this demeaning. I know they are trying to suggest that an untrained civilian solved a case which professional investigators couldn't, but it sounds like moms in general are of average intelligence and the fact that a mom solved any case is the shocking bit. Do better, people. Baker knocked on doors. She sent the information she found to the SCSO. She got hold of newspaper articles and publicly accessible case documents. She wrote about it all on her blog. She was basically a pain in the ass to investigators who had kept all that they had done and all that they knew in the dark. Connection to the podcast, A Happy Accident. Baker befriended the Wetterlings. She and Patty would eventually write a book together. And eventually she added Jared's case to her sleuthing. Soon after, she added tracking down the Painesville victims to her list. When she finally got the SCSO to respond to her information, they simply said that she hadn't given them anything they didn't already know. Insert sigh here. 
About the same time, Baker started seriously researching the Wetterling case. Robert Dudley, a pseudonym BT Dubs, also began an investigation. Baker and Dudley were not working together, but they did compare notes. Baker ultimately focused on Dwayne Allen Hart as the perpetrator, while Dudley wasn't convinced. Dudley had read FBI agent Al Garber's book. Garber had supervised the early Wetterling investigation. In his book, he tells about the arrest of a man who we know is Danny Heinrich, but Garber couldn't remember his name. Dudley set out to find this man. In addition, Dudley got a package in the mail full of copies of documents from a retired New York cop. In the file were the notes taken when the investigator for the 8th Judicial Court interviewed Dwayne Hart. Throughout his investigation, Dudley had tried to maintain contact with investigators on the case. Unfortunately, he rarely received a response, except from one FBI Special Agent Ball, a relatively recent addition to the St. Cloud Field Office. Dudley sent Ball a copy of the Hart notes. In August of 2014, 25 years after Jacob was taken, Patty Wetterling asked the SCSO to take another look at the case. This gave FBI agent Ball an excuse to propose bringing in a CARD team, Child Abduction Rapid Deployment, with agents unfamiliar with the case, to look at the case completely fresh. The CARD team reviewed the case files. They were also armed with DNA. In July of 2012, a DNA profile for an unknown male had been identified from Jared's snowpants, sweatshirt, and t-shirt. In April 2014, they got back a profile from the hat that had been left at one of the Painesville crime scenes. So, in May of 2015, the team submitted hairs Danny Heinrich had given in 1990. Hooray for people that save evidence! The results came back two months later. Just over two weeks after that, the team executed a search of Heinrich's home. From finding Jacob, quote, They came away with a computer and several binders filled with images of child pornography, several bins of child's clothing, and photographs of known victims of child exploitation, end quote. Also, found but not seized, knives, Nazi memorabilia, and a pair of handcuffs. They did seize the S&W 38 snubnose. Justice again moved slowly. Heinrich was arrested for the child porn on October 28, 2015, at his home. This means he was back on the street and able to continue his activities for three whole months. Three months, people. In addition, and no offense to her, but Joy Baker seems to have had a little to do with the arrest of Danny Heinrich. True, she shone light on Jacob's case when it had very little. But to repeat, she hadn't told investigators anything they didn't already know. The question that follows then is why had they not acted on that information until the card team got involved? When the judge asked S.A. Ball that question, Ball's answer was unsatisfying. It is unclear. And that is the $64,000 question. And look that up, people. It is a thing. An investigation of this magnitude is bound to have its issues. Heinrich's original arrest 26 years previous is a case in point. The FBI arrested him for Jared's abduction, but the prosecutors were irritated because they felt the FBI had acted too soon and they declined to prosecute. The photos. They gave him back the photos. And he burned them. Not to mention, they gave him back all the items they seized in the 1990s search of his home. Rassier is still missing things they took from his search. And there's the door knock. They didn't do it. No canvas, no speaking with the neighbors, not even Dan Rassier, whose driveway was the scene of the crime, and who was home that night. 
More leads took investigators out of the state, despite Sanders' assertion that the abductor was local. Over 8,000 people were interviewed over 20 years. But people living right in the area where the crime took place were never spoken to. The reliance on the shoe prints and tire tracks as some kind of unmovable bar that evidence had to reach before it could be accepted, who decided on that? Because with both, there really was no way to positively ID them with anyone or any item. All you could say was that they were consistent with yada yada. This could help, but it's not definitive. So when the investigation learned about Kevin and his car going down the Rassier driveway, they threw out the concept of the abductor having a car. At all. Plus squeeze me? What about Jacob's alleged footprints that stopped at a point in the drive? Did he float away? Because the dogs couldn't find his scent past that point. Did Dan Rassier beam Jacob to wherever he was hiding him? Because that's where the investigation goes when they magically make the car go away. Dan Rassier and his Star Trek beaming. And what about the other assaults? Painesville, Jared and Andrew. Did Rassier do all those as well? Because he had solid alibi for Jared's. Or were they writing those off? About four years ago, the sheriff's office was forced to open the case files to the public. The new sheriff, Don Goodmanson, had a press conference, which is currently available on YouTube. For a little over an hour, he reproaches the missteps in the Wetterling case. At the end, he opens it up for questions. And in the audience is Al Garber, the former FBI agent who had supervised the FBI's por portion of the early Wetterling investigation. Garber was not happy, and he took the criticism personally. Of course he did. Who wouldn't? But when things go wrong, when an investigation doesn't solve the crime... You have to do a debrief. You have to look at it and see what did we do this time that we won't do again or how can we improve on what we have been doing. The following is from In the Dark, Episode 8. And the reporter, Madeline Barron, is interviewing the sheriff, John Sanner, about the Jacob Wetterling case. And this is happening just before Danny Heinrich confesses to the crime. Is there some accountability to the public that's needed? Yeah, I guess I've never really looked at it like that. Uh -huh. um, when I've looked back and, and looked at things that, boy, I wish we would have done this or I wish this would have been done, again, I, that's all we can do is wish about that. I can't go backwards and change time. Nobody can. Sander has a point. Moaning over something that's in the past won't get you anywhere. But the problem with this is that being unwilling to admit mistakes or even just realize that you may have been able to do better or that you could do better in the future will crush future investigations. Your ego needs to be checked at the door when you become an investigator. Danny Heinrich was allowed to go on his merry way because... Okay, the first time he was arrested, you didn't have it. But why did no one go back to the file and try again? The police from Belgrade to St. Joseph, Minnesota, knew he was, in high probability, a child molester. You never looked at him again? Why did it take a new guy at the FBI to give it another go? This is your patch, Painesville, Cold Spring, and St. Joseph's police. This is your patch, Stearns County Sheriff's Office. In the end, Heinrich took a plea. They had him on all the child pornography they found in his home. What they didn't have was a connection to any actual child. He wasn't in any of the photos. They didn't find locks of Jacob or Jared's hair in his pantry drawer. So prosecutors offered him a deal. Confess, give the Wetterlings Jacob's body to bury and ease Jared's soul. 
if only a minute amount. 20 years in federal prison, and he admitted to both. He also took investigators out to the farm where he'd finally laid Jacob's body. The catch? Investigators cannot ask Heinrich about any other crimes. Puss squeeze me again? That's one huge catch. Because think about it. Jacob died in 1989. Heinrich was arrested in 2015. Actually, the police can't ask Heinrich, but there's nothing to stop the rest of us. Do you really think there was no one after Jacob? He had tubs of kids' clothes in his house. And Jared admits in the In the Dark podcast that Heinrich's confession in court relating to his, Jared's, assault was wrong. Was it Heinrich trying to give Jared the middle finger, or did he forget which kid was which? Patty wants to know, and so do I, why Heinrich killed Jacob, because he didn't kill any of the others that we know about. What happened with Jacob to make him change? And are there really no others since 1989? I mean, he was out trolling in his van in April of 91. Part of Heinrich's deal involved him detailing in court what happened after he took Jacob. You can find it online if you want the full confession. Important here are the details about the killing. Heinrich told the court that he had brought the gun to scare the kids, but it wasn't loaded. He said he saw a patrol car go by the gravel pit where he had assaulted Jacob. That spooked him, so he loaded the gun and shot Jacob and then buried him in the gravel pit. Jacob was reported right away. Did he hear the call out on the radio for people to be on the lookout for Jacob? His previous abductions never made it to the radio. No one ever said anything about the abduction and rapes until after it was all over, and by then he was gone. He could hide in anonymity but Jacob was being actively looked for. If he were caught with Jacob, or Jacob reported anything that could lead to Heinrich, he was finished. When Heinrich saw the patrol car, it could have been that extra boost to what he was already thinking of doing. The way Heinrich tells the tale, Jacob never saw his death coming. But the gun was a revolver. I cannot figure out how Heinrich could possibly have loaded that gun without Jacob noticing. Maybe it ultimately doesn't matter, but I'm peeved that Heinrich got to mitigate his crimes however he chose because there's nothing to contradict him. His victims don't get that luxury. As it sits, the Painesville victims will never see justice because no one can ask Heinrich about his other assaults, because law enforcement is attributing Heinrich to the Painesville attacks, case closed, nothing to investigate, and the statute of limitations has run out on all the crimes anyway. Did they take Heinrich's DNA and put it in CODIS? because I cannot believe that he never assaulted anyone else. I can only hope that any more recent assaults are being investigated, and some investigator will have DNA from that investigation and run it through CODIS. Any additional victims deserve to see their attacker caught, and frankly, 20 years in prison is not long enough. He should not be allowed any chance to recidivate. Well, that is, at the moment, the end of the Wetterling case. If you like what you've heard, please review the podcast, at least like the episode. That helps other people to find the show. I will link the Patreon and the Insta in the show notes. Stop in, say hello. Constructive comments are always welcome. Trolls, keep your comments to yourself. Crowded House will sing you out. And I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. i